Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We asked them, what is the collection that turned you on to short fiction and inspired you as a writer? Nearly all of them have said drinking coffee elsewhere. ZZ oh Packard God, that's, is a goddess. That's kind of, <laughs> that's kind of scary yes. to me. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Donnie. Hey, Disha. I feel like so many of our interviews and stories have led us to this very exciting moment. All of the conversations we've had here on Ursa Short Fiction, there are a few books and a few writers who keep coming up over and over again as a source of inspiration. This writer... This one is very high on that list. So many of us read these stories and it opened us up to what was possible with short fiction. I know exactly what you mean. And I also know exactly who you're talking about. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Drinking Coffee Elsewhere by ZZ Packer. First published in 2003. We are now here celebrating the 20th anniversary of this wonderful collection by talking to ZZ Packer. We're going to learn about her journey as a writer and who inspired her work, which in turn inspired so many of us. I'm Disha Filia, author of The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. And I'm Donnie Walton, author of The Final Revival of Opal and Nev. And this is Ursa Short Fiction, the podcast where we geek out on our favorite short stories. This show is produced with support from you, our listeners. Become an Ursa member today by going to ursastory.com slash join. You'll get exclusive bonus episodes and you'll help fund this production. So Disha, where were you when you first encountered drinking coffee elsewhere? So I would have been in 2003 when I was reading this collection. I think my youngest daughter had just been born when I was reading this collection. Um, so the collection is as old as my youngest child. And wow. it's, I just remember, and, and at the time for me, you know, professionally, I, you know, I was a baby writer, you know, and so I was just hungry for stories and and novels that I could learn from, but that also that I could enjoy. And Drinking Coffee Elsewhere was both. It was really a revelation for me as a Black woman writer. You know, I didn't know I was going to write a short story. I was going to write a short story collection. I was aspiring to write a novel, but um, I had not read short stories like this that focused on, in particular... Um, it was the black girlhood in these stories that I, I remember kind of really yes. vibing to at that time as, you know, as I was thinking about my own black girlhood and then raising two little black girls um, at the time. So that's where I was. How about you? So I wasn't even a baby writer at the time. I was just like not even thinking that was something I could do, but very much a reader. And I do think I was trying to think back to 2003. And I think this might be the first short story collection I ever bought with my own money. You know, I think I had in high school or middle school or something like that, like an Edgar Allan Poe Mm -hmm. (laughs) collection, you know, that we were reading for class. But, you know, there was a time in my life, 
years and years before I was tapped into the literary community or to any buzz having to do with it. Completely not part of that at all. I was just a reader and I would go to the bookstore every couple months and like pick up a handful of books and I would go to that table, mm-hmm. right? And you know the table mm-hmm. I'm talking about that hall has all the like yes. acclaimed titles, the books with the seals and the medals yep. and like all those things <laughs> on them. And I would just like read the things on the back, the descriptions on the back. I would look at the author photos. I would read maybe the first couple pages. And I remember turning this book over and seeing a photo of Zizi on the back. It's this black and white picture of her that looks almost vintage, mm-hmm. like those old tin types. Mm-hmm. And something about her put me in mind of Zora Neale Hurston, this picture of her. Ooh. And so that was enough That's for me. Right. I was like, look at this. Look at this fabulous woman. I picked it up. And then I read the stories inside it. And like you, like I felt very connected to them. They were like nothing I'd ever read before in in literature, in the fact that they were so contemporary, and yet they were packed with references that were completely familiar. Mm-hmm. And the first one to me is in Brownies. Yes. There's this, um, the Brownies are singing the song, make new friends, but keep the old one is silver and the other gold. gold. Yep. And <laughs> I remember both my mother and my grandmother singing that song and teaching it to me. Um, but also the black church scenes, mm-hmm. you know, um, some the people in the church, like all of those things. And also kind of the the look at academia and what the academic world is like for Black Mm -hmm. women. I thought young Black women was really, really interesting. And I I know that, you know, you were at Yale probably around the time that ZZ was there. We were there at the same time. Yeah, she's a couple of years um, younger than I am. And I remember her being very serious and very quiet. You know, we didn't move in the same circle but there was just an air about her and the way she carried herself that she was somebody very special. And so then years later, I'm like, it's her. It's that girl. I know. <laughs> you know? Well, it's so funny that you say there's something mysterious about mm-hmm. Zizi because I think that's true. Mm-hmm. Like she kind of dropped this collection like a miracle onto <laughs> onto mm-hmm. us. And she, you know, she's still teaching a lot and, and everything, but she, she made some such an impact mm-hmm. that she is really kind of like has this elevated status, you know? Yeah. And so like, I think people are so hungry for, for her work and her presence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I also, I went to the Iowa Writers Workshop years and years after, you know, she had gone there and I know, you know, like her legacy is, is still kind of there mm-hmm. um, as to, you know, what's kind of possible through for the black students coming through that program. It's really, really incredible. So I am so excited to talk to Zizi. I'm looking forward to it as well. So first, a little background about Zizi. Zizi Packer's stories have appeared in The New Yorker, where she was launched as a debut writer, Harper's and Story. Her work has been published in the Best American Short Stories, has been read on NPR Selected Shorts, and Packer is the recipient of a Rona Jaffe Foundation Writers Award. She is a graduate of Yale, the Iowa Writers Workshop, and the writing seminar at Johns Hopkins University. And without further ado, here is our conversation with the wonderful, the delightful Zizi Packer. Zizi Packer, it is an honor to have you here with us. Thank you for being on URSA. 
Thank you. I am so honored to be here. So we always ask our guests, and we've had quite a few stellar guests at this point. <laughs> we ask them, what is the collection that turned you on to short fiction and inspired you as a writer? And I am telling you, Zizi, nearly all of them have said drinking coffee elsewhere. Zizi oh Packard that's, is a goddess. That's kind of, <laughs> that's kind of scary yes. <laughs> to me. <laughs> so I guess my question to you Zizi is... Zizi the goat. At the time you were putting this collection together, and, and let me just say, we are here celebrating 20 years of drinking coffee elsewhere. Oh my God, yeah. Probably the first short fiction collection that I ever owned, right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So back in 2003... You blazing yes. these trails. Yes. Zizi, what writers or collections were you looking to at that time for inspiration for what you were doing? Oh, my God. That's so, that's so, it's just such a scary question. Um, I, I guess I've used the word scary twice already. I would say the collections that I was looking at, well, I will say this. Before, when I was in college and, um, and even at, at Hopkins doing an MA, I kind of tended to read a lot of novels. And, but yet I knew that you know, the, the form that I was working in was the mm. short story. And so I think I just gradually began, you know, there were all these anthologies and it kind of all the same um, stories that you might see. I mean, they'd be like Tobias Wolf or Richard Ford and all that, those people mm-hmm. and Raymond Carver. And, and it was only when I just was sort of like, okay, I do want to see short story collections by more women and by African-Americans. So then I think that I was, and women who were (laughs) African-American. And so then I was sort of like, okay, well, I began to see that James Allen McPherson um, wrote Hue and Cry and Elbow Room. And when I just picked those Mm up, I was Mm -hmm. just, I kind of was like, wait a second, why haven't I heard of this person more? You know, why haven't I heard of this person before? I think I had heard of him, but he wasn't touted in the same way that all the kind of um, early 80s, what I consider them to be the early 80s writers of uh, short stories that were just on all these, in all these anthologies. And so when I read those stories, I just felt like this is a genius just working and so he was definitely yes. one, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And then I think that Lori Moore, I mean, I, there was something about just her humor that I just mm-hmm. fell in love with. And I mean, it was like, it could be snarky and sly and sarcastic. And so that it was that. But, but between, uh, I would say, Lori Moore, Stuart Dybeck, uh, James Allen McPherson, reading Percival Everett, like just all of these, you know, I just gradually started seeing, okay, wait, there are all these people who just have these amazing collections and yet we just don't hear about them as much and they're not as taught as often. I mean, Laurie Moore for sure gets taught a a while, but I still am surprised by how little James Allen McPherson gets taught. Um, Of course, I've read, you know, Baldwin and it's great to go to, if you really want to go all the way back to like check off of those, you know, like a check off or somebody like that. But, you know, for me, McPherson was kind of, you know, was able to sort of show me what a, short story could could do grounded in, you know, the African-American South or like what it meant to talk about or, or like have something about manhood or relationships or whatever and be and be just to me fully authentic. Um, yeah. I, later on, I think I started looking at like Juno Diaz was drowned and and uh, those stories, um, which just had so much voice 
um, I know that, you know, he's had like, <laughs> there's been, you know, a lot of controversy surrounding him, but those stories with the voice, I just think it's like amazing. You know, Edwige, um, there are oh, tons yeah. of people that I just, I kind of am, am, you know, was in awe of then. And then I was able to like eventually meet some of them, you know, like Edward P. Jones, Lost in the City. I feel like he was another person. He himself was um, touched by McPherson in terms of just like McPherson having um, mentored him a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, those are some of the the key ones. I mean, but then the list could kind of it could go on very quickly. I could keep going and like, okay, this person for these stories or this person for just yeah. this one particular story. It took me a long time to warm up to like Alice Munro. You know what I'm saying? I, I just, uh-huh. I think that, but I'm a firm believer that, you know, in, in literature, you, know, you can love a person's writing and you can like a person's writing, but you, it just may not be the, the writing that it's going to, you know, center you or the writing that's going to completely move you. And that's OK. Mm-hmm. It's like music in that way. But those are a few. Great. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So let's talk about your iconic work, starting with brownies. So much in drinking coffee elsewhere just felt familiar to me. Um, I owned a beloved pair of red chick jeans, and I know it's chic, but we called it we called them chick mm-hmm. jeans. I still know the words to the brownie song. I will not sing it, but I still know. I had been a brownie. At an AME church, just like in the story growing up. And the, the, the church ladies were our Girl Scout leaders. Um, I don't think we ever went church camping, ladies. but I probably quit before they yeah. did camping because I was only there a minute. Uh, anyway, though, I don't think um, though we didn't actually meet. You and I were at Yale at the same time, ZZ. Oh and I remember seeing you walking around campus and I think working at the dining oh my hall gosh, yeah. as a fellow black yeah. girl. So, you know, we see each other. I was in Pearson. You were in Pearson, yeah, um, as a trumbull, yeah. And so you were in Commons. You worked in Commons. That's where no, I No, no, no. I worked in, I worked in Trumbull. Oh, I must like have visited somebody there yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah, but I also saw you walking across campus being very striking. And I thought like, ooh, she's younger than me, but so sophisticated. Like I just was, you know, just I, I felt like such a country bumpkin at Yale. But that's another story. But I remembered you because you were so striking. Um, but I didn't know oh that gosh. you were a writer. And that's sort of the the question that I am, I'm eventually going to get to is, you know, were you writing when you were at Yale? So when I was reading the title story, when the collection first came out, it brought back all those memories um, of my time at Yale. And you really encouraged me as a newbie fiction writer to, as I was drawing on my own past experiences, like this could be the stuff of literature. You know, we can write these stories. Um, And Mm -hmm. I didn't, but I didn't start writing until almost a decade after I left Yale and I was married and I had kids. Um, My second child was born the year Drinking Coffee Elsewhere came out. Um, So that's my long winded way of asking you, when did you start writing? Was it at Yale? And when did you know that this is what you wanted to do? 
do. Mm. Wow, that's a lot. You know, the thing was, I was just sort of like, Dish, that sounds familiar. You know, like, but like, I, I, you know, I, it was so funny because then I sort of was like, okay, I probably did see you, know you, all that stuff. But the thing is, I was in a daze, I think, when I was, I'm going to be honest with you. Oh, you were always like, you're, you were like walking past us, looking through us. And that's why I felt like you were so like grown up and sophisticated and mature. I was like, no, I don't know what she's no. doing, but Look, she's amazing. You know, I came from... <laughs> I came from Kentucky. Okay, so you're talking about being like a country bumpkin. Okay. I remember very distinctly, and I'm going to do a shout out to Imani Perry here. We were like, we weren't yes. roommates at the very beginning, yeah. but like there's this, this is short period of time where you're kind wow. of like before you get your roommates and there's foot, there's all these programs like foot where you take the Appalachian Prop. Trail, which I did. Yeah. And then there's another one. I think it was like, mm-hmm. what was the one where you were like, like, Prop. prop, it prop, was prop. prop. Yeah, that's why I said prep. Prop where that's it's for, you know, if you're uh, African-American person of color, you know, underrepresented minority or first gen or whatever. Um, and then, so I did foot, came out for foot, totally stinky, had to just get a, a shower, <laughs> looked crazy, came up late for prop. Everyone looked so, so we're talking about looking sophisticated. Everyone looks sophisticated. Right? They were from all these northern, pre- all the black people that I saw, it yes. seemed to me, were from all these like they northern were from LA prep schools. And Boston. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And all these yep. places. I was and I was just sort of like, Florida. Oh my gosh. I came in thinking I was all great with my MC Hammer pants. <laughs> just got made fun of nonstop. Well, I was impressed, Zizi. You had an admirer. It was me. And because I came from Florida and I thought, look at these girls in their like short shorts and tea, fitted tees. No. And I was oh like, my in gosh. my shoes match my outfit because oh I was from, from Florida. And that's how we did it. I, um, oh so, yeah. yeah, we were having parallel experiences. But I remember I, <laughs> and I had, and had no idea. With Amaya, the very first uh, kind of beginning. And I think she just had this look like, who are, what are you doing? You know, like, <laughs> like, like whatever. And so I, I, you know, when I, my time there, I think I was just sort of like, okay, I gotta just, I was playing catch up a little bit because I, on the one hand, I was amazed by everything. You know, I just was like, okay, this is, mm-hmm. in some ways, this is such this experience where everyone's sort of, everyone's smart. So you don't have to kind of like navigate through, right. through other stuff. And like, you know, like, so that was, that was great. But then I also came in thinking, you know, I had gotten waitlisted at MIT that eventually accepted. And then I was, you know, like a whole, I was such a math and science nerd for so long, a sort of a math and science nerd that loved to write. And writing was almost like my hobby mm. to math and science, you know? And so I guess, kept, you know, I was, when I, it's real, I kept thinking, okay, I guess I'm going to be an electrical engineer here because I just sort of felt like, okay, I, you know, if I love you know, writing and, and literature so much, will I be able to even do that at MIT? And then frankly, I was just scared of MIT. You know what I'm saying? I was just like, I'm terrified. Mm-hmm. And so when I got to Yale, I was just sort of like, okay, here I am trying to take all these insane hard classes. I know. No one, I think someone did try to counsel me against like diff Q, Japanese, <laughs> like whatever, like all of that. Well, you giving me flashbacks when you said diff Q. Oh my God. I, I remember my I just my was just like, I was Q. like, I have to, I was like, I have. To. Now, what is oh, diff Q? differential equations. For the people differential equations, right? Oh. I just yeah. broke out in hives. So then I, I just was like, okay, like I think at the time, I almost like was writing almost to 
relieve myself of anxiety in a way. Like, you know, I was just, I was writing down everything, anything from past experiences, whatever, all this stuff. I took this class with um, Jane Levin and it was like a non-fiction class. And I just was sort of like, like, I just kept trying to like, I kept noticing this movement towards fictionalizing it. And then she finally was like, do you want to take a, you should try for the fiction class or something. So then I just began, I was like, okay, oh my God, this is great. And I tried to take as many sort of workshop classes as I could. And there's kind of a maxer cap to them. So, you know, but I was doing this all while still thinking I was electrical engineering. And then I moved to pre-med. So I was taking all these other courses and then squeezing in like creative writing courses. And then finally I was like, what is like, I have enough to be an English major. Maybe I should just switch over. And that's kind of how things were there. So I was writing and I would submit things to the, you know, Yale Lit Mag. I just was like, I hadn't really thought that I was going to become an English major or a writer. Like I had written in high school even, but this was still something that coming from parents who are very practically minded, very pragmatic. As a black kid who's considered to be bright, you don't go into something that's artistic that possibly makes no money, you know? So right. it, was a, Absolutely. it was kind of very much a thing that I just, I didn't even really talk about to my parents. Well, my mom, I say my parents, my mom is a single mom. And, and I really think that she just thought, you know, after, I don't even think she knew I wrote until after college when I basically told her, I was like, well, I'm going to go to this program at Johns Hopkins for writing. And she was just like, what are you doing? I don't think she would even admit that now. But, you know, I was determined to just make it on my own. And I just kind of did that for a long time and subsisted off of pretty much no money and, and did other things like SAT prep and whatever to just make money. But I lived in like a studio apartment that you know, I really think I remember that year I made like $8,000 a year. <laughs> like, like it seems crazy now, but that was what I earned. And I, I kind of did all those things so I could just keep writing for as long as I could. It's just another inspiring note to remember that it takes time and you have to love it to stick with it, to stick through those $8,000 a year years. Well, I also you know. remember in college, I mean, I think going back to your question, I do remember also that was maybe when I kind of began to have an inkling of my voice or a voice that was different from just writers whom I admired. And so, for instance, I really did have this idea at the outset that like if you're a writer, you basically you know, you looked at the New Yorker, you found these words like, you know, these words that were like foreign sounding words. They were always either French or German. They required an umlaut or you know, like an accident you or something <laughs> like that. Like all that stuff to me sounded writerly, you know, I love Toni Morrison. So I was just like trying to write this totally, you know, what I thought was where lyrical sentences. It was just a kind of thing where. Like, it was the weirdest pastiche that I would try to do of, like, the book off, like, Toni Morrison, like, Flannery O'Connor or somebody like that. And it was just like, what, what are you trying to do? And I think that after a <laughs> while, there was one time when I had submitted this to this writing contest at Seventeen Magazine. And I had revised a story that I thought, okay, this is something I think maybe, maybe it has a chance. And then on a whim, I just sort of slipped in this other story too, this sort of story that I had just been working on. I think it was called something like, sometimes you get lucky or something like that. And then I got back and, you know, this is a long time ago, so it was by mail, <laughs> you know, like by mail. 
Um, and then I had to call the number or whatever. Yeah. I got back a, a reply saying, we'd like to have your story in the magazine. You've won this prize. I don't think I won the first prize. I think it was like a second or third prize or whatever. And then I was like, oh, cool. I just felt so vindicated that like I had studied how to write a story and, and my story had been accepted. And, and it turned out yes. it was a story that I hadn't even finished really. <laughs> And, and it was nothing at all. The, it was not at all the story that had like all the fancy language and whatever. It was really just a story that was kind of told more from the voice of this girl, you know. And I, I was like, wait a second, <laughs> like that's not even a real story. That's like to me, that was like almost like an exercise. But I was, I, but I kind of understood in a way. I was like, wait, this other thing is not my voice. I'm just putting on this patina, this this idea of what a writer should sound like, you know, yeah. rather than this other story, which I was actually developing something that I just, you know, not wanted to say, but wanted to show, you know, about this character. And that was way more authentic and genuine. And I think that was like my first lesson in voice and in style and in writing something that's meaningful. Like the other one story was, wow. it was only meaningful for my potential success. <laughs> you know, like it was not mm. meaningful qua story as a story itself. And so that was a bit of a lesson. Wow. But I mean, what a validation, right? Like, yeah, I was just playing right here. Wait till you like see the real <laughs> stuff. <laughs> well, the thing is, I don't even know before getting like a prize for that, my working on that story would have meant making it worse. <laughs> my working on the story would have meant making it less, you know, authentic. It would have been beating out anything real in it, you know, and making it kind of this almost this decorative form or like, you know, this like Fabergé egg kind of thing of a story, which is not actually what I deeply wanted to do. I just sort of thought that was what um, writers should do. So in a way, it was sort of like, wait a second, I'm working towards, I'm, not, I'm, I'm climbing up the wrong ladder, basically, when I'm trying to write the, the sort of what I thought of as being the quintessential like New Yorker story. My favorite story in the collection is Every Tongue Shall Confess. And this is... Oh, oh, wow. And this... It's yeah. surprising? No, it's oh. not surprising in retrospect. But I was just like, but no, since no one ever says that. But then I was like, knowing who I was talking to, I was like, yes, 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 it makes sense. <laughs> well, then you know what I'm going to ask. But. So, you know, that story and some of the others in the collection, including Brownies, as we talked about, it, you know, these stories made me curious, you know, what your background is in relation to the Black church and how the church came to influence your fiction. Yeah, I mean, I feel as though growing up in a Pentecostal church that, you know, it was inevitable that one day there would be a story <laughs> that would involve the church, mm -hmm. you know. And my relationship with the church isn't one of condemnation. On the one hand, the idea of fundamentalism to me is, is you know, problematic in kind of all of its forms, right? And that's just me, you know? But I don't think of the black church as being tied to fundamentalism in the way that I see a lot of at least white American churches being. And, um, and what it's more tied to, I think, is community. And I, you know, love and respect that community still, you know? Um, I just think that when I was a kid, I found certain 
aspects of some of the, it, it wasn't necessarily even the closed-mindedness of the people. I think it was more of just the tenants were sort of odd. And, and you know, I was just a, always a questioning kid, you know? So I was just always like, well, what about this? What about that? And in that way, I began to wonder, well, what would it be like if you had someone who was, you know, I know it sounds weird to say about that life, because mm-hmm. that, that typically means something right. else, you know, in, in, our, in our way of speaking. But this was her life, and and someone kind of just makes her a little bit have to deal with questioning some aspects of things, mm-hmm. but then they also... You know, for there to be something wonderful out of it in some weird way, like a love story or something. When I was writing it, when I initially started writing it, I I think that was the only story that I think I wrote the draft of in like basically like two days or like a a day or two. And then just, you know, revised it here and there. I think I actually left it alone for a while and then I knew that I had to, you know, revise everything for the book. And then I, I actually really overhauled a lot of stuff. But I think that in terms of my relationship with the church is sort of, it's one where like, I, I can't help but draw from, I think that, you know, you see Baldwin and, uh, you know, obviously yourself, you know, like, and I, I mean, I, what I can only imagine. So I feel like this is a thing where I have to be, like, it's so much a part of me that I can't have it, not have it be sort of in my fiction. And mm-hmm. it just feels very essential. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So this collection is packed with so many characters that I just love, right? So I think my favorite is Marie from Speaking in Tongues. I just loved her very much. Uh, But there's the blues player, Cleophas Sanders. There's Sheba Mm. from Our Lady of Peace who got that classroom together, uh, let's say. (laughs) Daphne from Brownies, the budding poet and author, My Father, the Veteran, which is such a beautiful Mm -hmm. line. Of all the characters in this book... Do you have a personal favorite? Oh my gosh, that's such a hard one because I think they're like characters. I know everyone says characters are like my children. There's no favorite. Our stories are like my children. Like I, I feel on the one hand, since I wrote it so long ago, I will read from Drinking Coffee Elsewhere, but I also like in my mind, it's not there anymore. I'm not, not saying in a bad way, but just in a way where like I've been working on this novel for so long and I've been working at least two stories for quite a bit of time much longer than I, they should require. But we're going to book about Breonna Taylor, the Breonna Taylor case in Louisville. Like, it's kind of like, what am I doing? <laughs> why am I doing all this stuff? And why am I doing it all at the same time? But what we're drinking coffee elsewhere in terms of the characters, I mean, I think that even though Dina is not my favorite character necessarily, and I don't know if it makes sense for me to say a favorite character, it's the one I kind of think of the most often. I think the one that people think of as being maybe an alter ego for me or, so, you know, some stand-in or something, which I don't think it is. I just think it is the, the one that I feel like 
because she's so problematic. I just like feel a kinship to anything that's like a puzzle. <laughs> like I love puzzles. I'm one of those puzzle nerds. And to me, writing is kind of like writing short stories, at least, are sort of puzzle-like, you know? And and then mm-hmm. the characters who are the mm-hmm. most enigmatic in their own way are sort, of, are sort of like that. But all of them are kind of like once a character sort of coalesces, you know, I feel maybe it's unfair to think of them as sort of like first you have these images of them and then they're kind of in a scene and there's a it's very embryonic and then they sort of you know like if you, if you study biology like the sort of doubling of them like embryo feet or whatever just it kind of like goes and, and they kind of take on their own life in a way and to me I, I think it's weird whenever I talk about characters to other people don't seem to talk about them as much as like being real people as I think of them as being mm-hmm. and I think of other people's mm-hmm. characters that right so I kind of can't quite, um, not to say that I can't quite discern reality from fiction, but to me, I can't quite say, oh, this one character. I mean, I love when they come on and they do something and then they're, they do something puzzling or they do, they they leave or what. I mean, I, so all of yeah. them, I know that sounds like a cop-out kind of answer, but I guess I would say probably Dina. Well, let me say, I worry yeah, about yeah. Dina very much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah she, me like, too. Like, yeah, girl, girl, no, no, of course. On. Like, yeah, she shows up in a couple different stories. Is it the same Dina in your mind, the one that's in? I kept thinking, yeah. I started off thinking, okay, this is, and I was like, no, something is happening, nothing, something growth-wise. But yet, I couldn't bring myself to change the name. It did not feel right to do a replace-all, find a replace-all. You see what I'm saying? Mm. So I, whenever mm-hmm. people ask, is it the same Dina? Mm-hmm. Like, I can't really give a satisfying answer because I feel like, yes and no, you know? And I, that's something that can't really exist in real life. I mean, someone was like saying, okay, you know, because you, your yeah. cells, re, you know, like you're like every seven years, you're a different person because they're, all your cells are regenerated. That's not quite the answer either. So I feel like that's kind of a, I won't say a problem area because it's not like I'm just going to go and change it. But people sometimes want answers to be satisfying and things to make sense. And I can't give a sensible answer to that. Yeah. And the Dina in Geese, I have to say, when she's in Japan and she mm. is in that tiny room with all them people and wakes up with that man on top of her. I was like... At her throat. At her throat oh, my throat, gosh. I was like, oh, my God. Sis, yeah, I know. Please. I just, I don't know why I'm so problematic <laughs> no. in so many ways. Like, you know, like, I, about my characters. But it's sort of a thing. And I don't even do it to be sadistic to, like, put people and put these characters in, like, bad spots. I just sort of feel like, like, I, I'm generally going where the story is leading me. And, you know, sometimes it leads to these places. You know, with these, this new, it's not a collection yet by any means, but I'm sort of like, why, what, what's wrong with my brain? Why am I doing this? What am I doing to these poor characters? Well, I will say, you know, one thing that I really appreciated reading this, this collection again was the stories are always so surprising mm. to me. Like nothing that I ever mm-hmm. expect to happen happens. And it made me sort of wonder about mm. your process mm. and where the story typically starts for you and how you follow it through. Is it an organic thing or do you have an idea of the shape of the story before you start writing or do you just sort of follow the character? I do feel as though I, I'm a more organic writer than someone like, you know, Edward P. Jones who, you know, has become a friend of mine. And every time I try to nail him, ask, 
when you wrote The Known World, did you, like, how did you write it? I've asked him this several times. And he, I think, no, I think at this point, he's always like, you know the answer to this. Whenever he was like a tax, he did this whole tax book thing or whatever. His mind was working on it. This, this is what he tells me. And then he sat down and wrote it, you know, and that was it. It was sort of like no turns, no this, no that, very few. Four books on like the period, you know, and unenslaved people and in the period. And and that's kind of it. And and people are like, which are forward that way and whatever. And I don't know if it's a male, I don't know if it's a particular male writer thing. But for me, like when I'm writing a story, generally there's some odd way that it po- something pops up into my brain, like an image or just a situation or sometimes just a feeling. And then I, I'm thinking about it for a while. So like, you know, the rest of my life is going on and I'm whatever and I'm reading and I'm doing this and doing that and teaching, whatever. And then there's just something that's happening where I just am, it still have that, you know, my sort of, I wouldn't even say unconscious self, but like it's in the back of my mind or it's running along parallel with everything else. And then, you know, the more I begin to see things, I'll just try to like write something out. Or I'll think like, okay, if this were a story, <laughs> what would the beginning be? And I have to kind of psych myself up for it. Like I'm almost just like, you know, like someone trying to exercise, or like not someone, me trying to exercise, where I have to like psych myself up for it, as opposed to, you know, people who just go out and do it. And so basically, eventually I get some words down or an image down, some dialogue down. Like I, you know, I try to make a scene or something like that. You know, a lot of times it's, I have to leave it alone for a while, you know. And these days, back in the good old days of, of school, it was great because I just had time. Now it's like everything that I'm doing in life takes things away from, you know, the time I have. But eventually I just get more and more down. And then there becomes a point, and I don't know wh- what the point is, or just maybe it's the feeling where I actually feel like, okay, I'm, I'm, working on this and I and then there's more of a rush and I'm more able to like you know think out things scenarios scenes and I just the, I began writing the story in earnest so I've been doing that with a you know for a little bit I have some stories that I haven't published yet but those are also not done so I just it takes me a long time and I've been writing this novel so that's taken a while to Mostly, I would say an image and then the character. And I really almost have to feel like the character is someone real enough that I'm almost following them before I can uh, really have confidence that they deserve a story. Zizi, what do you think is the best sentence you've ever written? Like, if I had to pick out, I'm really a lover of sentences. So it's not even just like, oh, so all of them are so great or anything like that. It's more just that, like, once I've written something, I only know that I thought it was good enough for me to keep, you know? And so now it's just a matter of, like, what do other people think? Like, I have this friend, and she heard me read a bit of the novel. And she, her name is Akua Naru. She's amazing hip-hop artist that, you know, she's known internationally, but not here in America because, I don't know, we just have Kanye. America. <laughs> yes, I guess. That's who, that's who Americans are because listening America. to. Because <laughs> America. So she liked this one thing, but it's not a sentence. It's just not one sentence, I guess. And it would need context. It's actually sort of uh, several sentences. Big water, big ship, 
the only un-African words Osceola's Mima had ever spoke. Yet she always spoke them quaking, her hard distrust of water. White folks used it bad, not to purify, but to scald, not to baptize, but to drown. So I don't know, it goes on after that, but I don't know, she liked that one. Mm. And you know, I think that's her, but Thank I mean, you. I think I sort of stopped on that. I you, I love it. Purified. New, I know, ooh, I feel special, Newer. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> you guys, you guys. <laughs> To circle back to drinking coffee elsewhere, back to pre-publication ZZ, before that book came out, what would you say to her? Pre-publication. About the process, about writing. Yeah. I think I would have maybe told her to stick to her guns on some aspects of the collection. I had had like actually a different title. I did like the title of Coffee Elsewhere, but I actually had a different one in mind. A different, I actually wanted it to be Every Tongue Shall Confess. And I think that that was my editor, whom I love. I love, she's uh, Cindy Spiegel. She's just one of the smartest and most amazing people around and published Just, just Mercy and all, just tons and tons of books that like are amazing books. I think that like she was saying that, okay, well, there's a, Zorno Hurston sort of book that's coming out that sounds too similar. But, you know, there's some aspects of that that I think I want to, you know, I would have maybe kept with maybe the title or or even like I had, I just, just other things. I, I guess I'm not being very specific, but I feel as though when I was younger, I just, I was happy to be published. And I think that, you know, definitely my editor and the publishing house did write by me and had a tour and did everything. They were really excited and they, you know, did everything that I think was like amazing. And I had like a great rollout and all that stuff. I think that's probably the the title is probably the biggest one. The other thing I would have, I think I would have told myself is to, I would have maybe had a second book out before kids. But that's not a pre-publication thing. I think that's a thing that's maybe post-publication thing. And, and you know, it's just different for women writers than it is for male writers. No matter how mm-hmm. much we could say, like, a male writer does stuff with their kids and does all that kind of stuff. It's just different. It really is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been a long time between Drink Coffee Elsewhere and then even the possibility of this next book coming out. And I love my kids dearly. <laughs> like, my, you know, like, I feel like they're just my total heart. But being a single mother and trying to write and teach and be the sole breadwinner <laughs> and raise them correctly, you know, as the Bible says, in the way that they should go, <laughs> you know, as we say in the church, is, is a, it's a gargantuan, Herculean task. And some people might say Sisyphean, but I don't even know if that's a pre-publication. Probably is a pre-publication too, because I just sort of thought, okay, you have a book, then you can do what you need to do. And then, you know, your other book will come out like in, you know, a couple of years or a year or something like that. No, that's very real. Yeah. That's very real. Mm-hmm. ZZ Packer. It was amazing to have you here. Oh Thank you God. so much. I'm just for so honored us. to be Thank here you. on Ursa with you guys. And you guys are just amazing talents. I'm in awe. I don't even know if I say the next generation, but like, because writing generations are sort of different from, you know, 
birthing generations, but you know, you guys are yes. really just holding up the banner for us. Oh, so proud. Oh, thank you. My face is hurting. Thank I'm so smiling much. so hard. Thank right? you. Thank right? you. Thank you for opening the door. Oh, thank you for sweet. inspiring so many so of us sweet. and showing us what was oh, possible. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. This is a real moment. And thanks everyone for joining us. If you like what we're doing at URSA, be sure to share this podcast with your friends. And if you'd like to support us directly, become an URSA member by going to ursastory.com slash join. You'll help fund production of this show and keep us going. We'll see you next time.